I'm Anushka Dukas and I've been designing jewellery for 30 years and collecting charms for as long as I can remember. In this new podcast, I'll be asking a series of extraordinary women to tell me their life story in seven charms. This week's guest is an icon in the world of fashion journalism. She is British Vogue's longest-serving editor, Alexandra Shulman. For me personally, having a child made doing my job much more possible because I think if I hadn't had that alternative important thing in my life then it the difficulties that come up which of course they do at work would have taken up up much more of my headspace then when I came home um I was with Sam I felt it helped the balance really for me there are so few things that can stand the test of time and evoke a memory like a tiny detailed charm a very special 18 karat gold biography so it goes without saying that I'm very excited to welcome Alexandra Shulman to my life in Seven Charms. Oh, thank you, Anushka. So I wanted to start by asking you about something you wrote about jewellery. Jewellery is the link in our personal lifetime of memories and associations that make us the person that we are. I mean, I was so thrilled when I saw you'd written that. Well, I was writing um, my recent book, which is called Clothes and Other Things That Matter, and I was doing a chapter about jewellery and so I did quite a lot of research on jewellery which I'd never in fact done before just to kind of get my head around the concept of actually what jewellery was and it just made me realise how jewellery has always been with us you know from the very earliest times uh, human beings have used some kind of adornment so a kind of jewellery and I think the fact that it's got it's it's been so embedded in what it is to be human is one of the most interesting things about it. You know, it's not, it's sort of more part of us than our clothes, really, in a way, because it's been around for longer. And so once I sort of started thinking about that, I then realised, you know, how many, how many um, events in our life get marked by jewellery and how much, because jewellery is something that's actually on our body, you know, how much it sort of is part of the life we live I mean it comes along with us whatever we do wherever we go so it's um it's a very important thing as well as being very beautiful it's and it's um it's not come along just along with us does it It, you know when you have something belong to somebody one of your relations it's, it's got so many memories I mean I um when my mother died when I was quite young I inherited her jewelry box which was not full of very expensive, gorgeous, you know, things, sadly. It was full of all sorts of stuff that she'd collected over the years. And it just has so many memories. Mm. And, you you know, because a, a jumper or a pair of shoes, every pair of shoes is different, but a jumper or clothing just doesn't have that. And it doesn't have the longevity of jewellery, does it? No, and jewellery, you know, gains sort of more as the years go by. I mean, on the whole, jewellery, you know, every generation it's handed down, it becomes more precious and it's it's partially sort of, I suppose, the age it is. But it's also because it's, it brings with it all those stories from the, yeah. the previous yeah. generation. Yeah, it's, um, I often think about, you know, which of my jewellery I've got will actually sort of 
go on to another generation, you know, which will be the things that get handed on or haven't got broken or lost by the time I die. Well, yeah, well, it will exactly, but hopefully lots of it. <laughs> I, hope <laughs> lots so. of, I but, hope a reasonable amount. But if it's gold, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, love, I happen to love 18 karat yellow gold and it gets this kind of patina that's better and better with age and it kind of, just that seems to tell the story of the the wear and how much it's been loved. Even your kind of wedding ring, you know, it wears with age and it's, you know, there's whatever's, whatever's gone mm. on. So I kind of love that. Without further ado, let's talk about your seven charms. So the first one was a vinyl. I think it's a single. So I visualise this as a really beautiful, very slim piece of polished onyx, both sides, with a centre set in yellow gold, but with little pave rubies in it. And it could even have on the on the other side, because I like things to be both sides, if they work both sides, it could have whatever the name of the song. And I was going to, my, my first question to you was, is there a song? And then I want you to tell me why you chose a vinyl. Well... <laughs> It's kind of tricky, that one, because the, 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 the starting point of the vinyl and for younger, for younger listeners, <laughs> singles are quite small, uh, 45 RPM, weren't they? Um, and I'm not sure whether you get them now because a huge resurgence in vinyl albums, yeah. but I'm not sure that so much in, in those small singles or if at all. Anyway, my... Um, Dad used to take us out on a Saturday morning. Our treat of the week was to go out with him and he'd buy us comics um, and we'd be allowed to go and pick a, a little gift. And quite often we would go into WH Smith's. Um, our nearest one was in Sloan Square then. Oh, God, I remember And the downstairs in the basement were these, there were booths where you could listen to whatever it was that you thought you might want to buy. So, you know, we'd go in and... Then, of course, there'd be a certain amount of argument, three of us, about what, you know, which was going to be the single that we that we wanted to buy. It was um, one between three of you, was it? It was one each? They weren't one each, so no. I think it must have been one between the three of us and maybe some compensation presents for those <laughs> yeah, that yeah. Didn't, didn't want the single. Anyway, I remember um, getting um, Marianne Faithful, uh, <laughs> This Little Bird, it was called, and... I always wonder whether that kind of... Um, well, I always loved music and I collected albums. Um, and um, I wanted to work in the music industry. So music albums have always been a part of my life. And I love the idea of the kind of, you know... What did you say well, the centre was going to well, be? I the think onyx sh- with the... Um, well, I think it should be pave rubies. Right, well, sounds amazing. Well, Certainly <laughs> more precious than the single was, but maybe not... Emotionally, that single was very important. Absolutely. So you were mm. one of three. Um, your father was a renowned crit- theatre critic. Your mother um, also was a writer. I mean, it strikes me it was, gosh, quite a literary, rather articulate household. Was it, you know, was it competitive? Well, you know children um, live with the cards they're dealt with. The way you're brought up does seem to you to be the norm for a pretty long time. So, um it was a very, um, I wouldn't say competitive. I don't think we, I mean, my siblings and I weren't particularly competitive 
between us, but our parents did have real ambitions. For they you. were very ambitious themselves. I mean, my mum's still alive. Yeah, yeah and <laughs> but they really wanted to succeed, and they did. And so they weren't, you know, they didn't want their children to kind of drop the baton, I think would be the way I'd put it. <laughs> yeah. um, and there was a kind of, you know, there was an expectation that we were going to to do stuff, you know, whatever that stuff might be. Um, so there was quite a lot of noise, you know, sort of quite a lot of uh, arguments about whether one was doing enough work, homework, you know, school stuff. And always, always was this this conversation, always that there, there was just talk all the time, you know, at dinner, at breakfast, wherever, you know, we were never a family that sat there, sat there quietly. And I think I was very lucky because it made me aware of the fact that you can disagree with people. I mean, I disagreed with particularly my father most of the time and very noisily, but that doesn't mean to say that you don't love each other. And I think people often mistake sort of disagreeing or arguments for thinking that it has to do with not liking somebody or something completely different. It's, no, it's just, just a point of view. But it didn't seem to do me any harm, I have to say. Your second charm... Um, is a book and you were quite specific that it should be a book with a green cover um, and so I had seen a little pile of books um, which I'd like to open and be a locket but I'd seen them as a yellow gold book with green savorites all over the all over the spine um, so because I think it'll look really nice in a pile like that and very polished polished yellow gold when you open the locket because I love things to be as perfect inside as they are outside and I didn't put a title on it because I wasn't sure mm. what title but um, tell me why you were very specific about these green books <laughs> well I love um, I love the idea of the books being a locket or a locket in the shape of books because it just seems so fitting somehow you know books are such a depositories of so many kind of ideas and thoughts um the green books were actually to do with the virago imprint which sort of started i guess when i was in my teens and a group of women decided that they were going to, that, that basically women there were a lot of women writers whose work hadn't really been recognized mm -hmm. at the time they came out and they reissued uh then all of Virago was reissues and they had these wonderful green paperbacks with beautiful paintings on, on the cover, um, often by women artists or of women. And, and so many of my favourite writers like um, Elizabeth Taylor and Rosamond Lehman, E.H. Delafield, uh, were published, republished by the Virago imprint. But it also sort of coincided with a period of time, I guess, where I sort of began to realise how much I enjoyed reading and how much reading and writing, writing meant to me. So was it, were you, did you read a lot as a child? Yeah, we all read a lot and it's a huge pleasure. And, and I see here, I think that the, the charm's got the, of the female it has. Yeah. I, I wasn't sure. I was, was well, that about the kind of female Well, that was because of Virago, but actually I do normally read female writers as well still. Oh, do you? Um, on primarily. For, so for pre for out, of, out of preference? Just out of preference. Oh, I see, seem to. I don't know. I guess I identify more with what they're writing about. Um, it's not always true, but... 
But novels in particular. Yeah, novels in particular. I mainly read fiction. I mean, we're so absolutely surrounded by books here. Do you, out of interest, do you read on a Kindle ever? No, I hate reading on a Kindle. I've tried it and I totally get that when you go on holiday, it should be what you do. But my most of my luggage is books. books. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I sort of slightly envy people who like reading on Kindle, but to me it, it so is only a tiny part of the experience. You know, you can't pass the book on to somebody else after you've yeah. read it you can't it's quite difficult to flick back I don't know how you mark I quite often am making notes out of books for um possibly something I might use to write something and yeah. it's much harder if you haven't got a yeah no no I completely, I completely get that so I'm going to move on to um charm three it's a small camera and you again you were quite specific that it it was not a kind of modern camera and thrilled to know it wasn't an iPhone camera. <laughs> um, so more kind of Leica style, you said. I mean, everyone's going to think I've got an obsession with lockets, but I do actually. And um, three-dimensional, miniature version of a, of a Leica, I think. And I think the back should open so that almost like you're going to put the film in it. Um, I think it should be uh, yellow gold, um, but all gorgeous light brown diamonds that would kind of because some of those like has got a, a leather a leather case not actual case but the, the cameras in leather and um, I think the lens should have a little um, rose cut diamond in the in actually as the lens and we're going to make the um, the lens where it, where it goes telescopic to normal so it actually is going to turn and get and it might not get bigger, because I think that's pushing it, but it, it is going to turn. Um, and um, and then all the little buttons will make it as perfect and miniature as we possibly can. It is exquisite what you've drawn here. It's just the most... The jewelled camera is really the most wonderful piece of art, literally, in itself, it would, looking at it. And you know, it would be absolutely... Um, it would be just adorable, anyway. Well, obviously... Some of this must be from Vogue and everything you did at Vogue. But but tell me particularly why. Um, I've always loved photography. And as a, a sort of young woman, uh, I quite wanted to be a photographer at one point. And indeed, I did do a little bit of professional sort of portrait photography, but a very little bit. Well, before the music, but, okay, hang on a minute. Yeah, this was <laughs> actually, on, this was before the music, right. oddly enough, and it just goes to show, you know, in those days, I, mean, I was so lucky, really, it just was kind of much easier to just go and, I don't know, go and do the work you wanted to. So I don't know how, but somehow I ended up doing portraits for NME, the music magazine. Um, I didn't do many, but I did some, and I have no idea how that came to be now. <laughs> um, but anyway, I did, and um, I used to develop my own pictures and uh, print and develop my own pictures. And actually, it's a great sadness to me now that I'm using an iPhone where I just think the pictures aren't nearly as good and it's not that the quality is particularly not good it's that the way that I use it the way I frame it just doesn't have anything like the same consideration as when I had a camera like this beautiful little camera 
you've designed. Uh, but of course, being at Vogue, um, I'm in terms of the camera, you know, Vogue has the most wonderful fashion photography. So what a treat to to work with all of that imagery for 25 years. You've came across all the very best photographers in the world. Was there one that really stands out for you? I think that, you know, photographers obviously are so different and I was really lucky to work with some of the, you know, the great names of the time. I mean, uh, Tony Snowden was uh, had a contract with Vogue, so I worked with him and, you know, when he was on form, his his portraits were absolutely extraordinary um in terms of fashion um mario testino was really one of the photographers we used the most both for for fashion and celebrity shoots and i was very fond of mario and he was a wonderful vogue photographer actually because he had an idea a kind of optimism and a and a sense of glamour and a sense of wanting things to be kind of uber in a way uh, which I think was was very lovely for the magazine, but at different times when I you know when I joined the magazine it was 1992 and very shortly after that sort of grunge movement uh, came into being and with it a whole new cadre of creatives which were you know artists photographers and models which were much more pared back much more downbeat so you'd have photographers for instance like. Um, Jürgen Teller started then and photographers who I think sort of thought that what they were doing was portraying kind of real life albeit fashion it was meant to have a kind of reality about it but as time went by of course they became actually all their work became as much a construct as those ones that were more kind of obviously glamorously artificial. People like Jürgen Teller, um, Mario Testino, was Vogue responsible for their unbelievable success going forward did you find these young photographers at the time or yeah I think Vogue I think Vogue was very um important in the development of most of the photographers careers that I worked with I mean there were some who were already very established like Tony Snowden like Patrick Demachelier for instance who'd also become very famous taking portraits of um the princess of wales and lots of fashion photographs um and david bailey of course who'd you know been there since god was a boy and um (laughs) so they were you know i don't think that sort of my vogue really was particularly formative for them but there were you know a whole generation of photographers who i think we we very much helped their career. And the way that fashion photography works in magazines is that the magazine pays all the expenses on the shoot yeah. and um, often helps come up with a lot of the ideas and the concepts and everything. And so in a way, it is a sort of collaboration. It's the photographers not just going off and doing something on their own. Fashion is also, you've got to get the clothes in somehow. So that does sort of affect what you're... What you're what doing, yeah. yeah, of course. Do you think that this kind of new digital world of iPhones and you know endless pictures? I mean, I don't know how many thousands of pictures I've got on my iPhone, mm. but um, but how are we going to create memories from this? Because I don't know about you, but I've got so many photographs. But 
how many have I ever printed off my phone? I don't know. How are we, how are we going to kind of make those lovely albums that you talk about? I don't about? know, because I do print them. And for that reason, yes. on on From your phone, you print them? Yeah. Do you? Yeah. I happen to be eight years behind, but <laughs> I do have the pictures. Not obviously every picture that I take, but I think I think what's quite interesting is actually the effect that Instagram has had on what you're talking about because I'm quite a keen Instagrammer and I do post an Instagram, you know, once or twice a day, most days. And doing that slightly, it's not the same as taking pictures for a photograph album. You know, they, they, they're, they're very much a kind of construct or something that you're trying to say something about. And sometimes because you're doing that, you actually stop taking the pictures that are really just a record, a true record yeah. of your life, I think. I guess it will. It's just just weird because I just spend so I love when when my children were in fact well I I made an album for each of my children for the various stages, I gave up about six years ago, but I'm absolutely amazed at how much they really love it. Mm. They really really love it. I bet. But I also think that taking a photograph with a real camera. Mm. Because of, it was certainly before, I mean, the cost of the film, the developing and all of that. So it made you kind of really look at the detail, concentrate. Yeah, so now definitely. we just snap, 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 don't we? I know. I just wonder whether a lot of people that's true of. I guess people will have different kinds of ways of, mem- of their memories, won't they? So whilst we're talking about Vogue... Um, we can talk about your fourth charm, which is a dress. And I love the fact you were really quite specific about a number of these charms, but particularly this dress, which you said it needs to be sleeveless with a waist and a pencil skirt, maybe pink and maybe with sparkle. <laughs> so I am I, um, going to ask you why specifically that. But so I, you can see what I've drawn is very much... Uh, uh, exactly that dress sleeveless I've got it on a hanger because otherwise it's too hot how's it going to work as a charm <laughs> I see it as in pink gl- gorgeous pink sapphires little bow um, in yellow gold it's three-dimensional so you know it's got a split little little split up the front show a bit of leg but why did you decide on this particular you know pink split sparkly maybe and sleeveless dress well when I thought about you know my life and seven charms I I realized that a dress had to be one of them and I realized that um and again I wrote about this in in my book how often pink has played an important part in in my life and that many of my favorite clothes have been pink and (laughs) Unintentionally, I had no idea until I started writing that book how many pink clothes I had. And I think that... All colours of pink. All kinds of pink, yeah. Right. Pale pink, um, cyclamen pink, uh, chaparelli pink. <laughs> so I thought for the, for the dress, for the charm, you know, I wanted to have a good time dress, a dress that I knew I'd be having fun in. And very often my pink clothes are clothes that I have fun in. As for the sort of shape, sleeveless, pencil skirt, waisted, um, I think that's a kind of a pretty favourite shape of mine. Um, And I also thought it would make a nice 
shape for a, for a charm. charm, whereas sort of the kind of dresses now, those kind of prairie dresses with, you know, high necklines and huge tents would look a bit horrible as a yeah, charm. You're right. we'd, we'd so it's a slightly <laughs> old-fashioned style dress. No, no, well, dress. thanks for that. I, I was absolutely delighted. I think it would be absolutely gorgeous. But when you were appointed um, editor of Vogue in 1992, um, you talk about an early photo shoot that, as, as an editor, um, and you said that part of a set of publicity shots intended to show you the kind of person you thought you should look like as an editor. Well, well I'm absolutely fascinated to know. Do you remember what the photo shoot, what you look, what you did wear oh, that day? Oh, I, I absolutely, rem- <laughs> yeah. absolutely remember because that um, that was about when I was writing about white shirts for, for my book again and um, there was a publicity shot, the shot that I'm referring to where I wear a white shirt and my hair's sort of up and um, my art director of the Vogue who's called Robin Derrick everybody gave me a 10th anniversary album which was very sweet with kind of things and one of the things they he stuck in well was stuck in <laughs> um, and I think I always thought it was probably him who said it but maybe it wasn't it was captioned this photograph the only time we've ever seen her in one you know so I put on a white shirt because it was meant to be, I thought it, you know, made me look kind of efficient and chic. kind of pared down and chic. But, yeah. you know, actually, I never wear white shirts. <laughs> um, was it white shirt? Was it tr- trousers? Skirt? No, um, it was probably tucked into a skirt. But you, it was a headshot. But you couldn't see. <laughs> it was a headshot. And, um, but it was a way of sort of thinking about how how we use clothes to send out messages about ourselves, really, you know, what we want people to think about yeah, us. Yeah, no, absolutely, because I thought it was quite interesting because, you know, actually, I was thinking about myself, who, you know, what does someone in charge, what are they supposed to look like? <laughs> you know, who knows what they're supposed to look like? Actually, incre- now, over COVID, you've only got to worry about that bit anyway. Table, you? table up. Table up. Um, but tell me, you'd, you'd come from Tatler. No, GQ, which had just launched as the sort of first men's magazine, men's glossy magazine. So were you the f- in the UK? Had they had a female editor before? No, well, they hadn't really had an editor. They had a launch editor, and the launch didn't go really according to plan. So then they were looking for a sort of another editor, and that was me. Um, and it was slightly odd, obviously, because you're launching a men's magazine um, in the UK, you know, trying to introduce the idea of a of a consumer glossy to the men's market and then you've got a woman in charge of it um it was quite a brave thing it was brave did mm. you enjoy it yeah i loved it absolutely loved it um it was it it was daunting of course you know to to do but um i had really nice team mm. and enjoyed enjoyed it very much and it was a, a lovely mixture of kind of consumer journalism and really quite proper features journalism. And when the editorship of Vogue came up two years later, I never really entered my head that that would be a job that I would go for. I was perfectly happy in the job that I had. But then people started kind of saying, well, are you going to go for the Vogue editorship? And then I'd start kind of reading articles where they do, which they always do, you know, who might be in the running for it and whatever. And my name would come up. And I started to think, well, 
you know, am I being a bit wet by not applying for the Vogue job? You know, because actually, will I really want to spend years editing GQ? And Vogue is sort of, you know, it's the top the job. Pinnacle, yeah. Um, and my publisher on GQ, a wonderful man called Stephen Quinn, had been moved over to Vogue. And he was very keen that I applied. So then I thought, well, I can't really not. I mean, it just is too wet (laughs) and limp. Too Um, wet. I mean, you talked about daunting going to GQ. Oh, God, about daunting going to Vogue. Um, It was daunting going to Vogue. Um, I guess I knew by that time that I could edit a magazine because I had edited GQ. So I sort of knew how it worked. And I knew that I could edit a magazine where I didn't really know anything about the subject matter as well. <laughs> um, so my recollection of it, and again, as I say, I have no memory, but my recollection is that I did. I wasn't so much daunted by the task of editing it, but I was quite daunted by the number of people that I was going to have to meet and work with and sort of establish a relationship with. That was pretty terrifying yeah I think that was terrifying but you said you 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 said you know when you got there you wanted you were clear about what you wanted it to be you wanted it to be beautiful accessible and relevant I mean I can't really remember but was it none of those things at that point um (laughs) no it's a a very good question and, and you know any new editor that comes in as I've discovered having left Vogue now myself you know any new editor that comes in basically positions themselves as something different to the editor that was there before who was there before liz tilberis was um, the editor who left to relaunch harper's bazaar and she was very successful um people liked her uh photographers liked working with her um, the advertisers liked her but the magazine was slipping in circulation because she wasn't really interested in things outside of fashion and the marketplace was changing at that point and suddenly you had all these new magazine uh, newspapers that were launching and they were all launching fashion supplements as well or even the established papers like um, the Times and the Telegraph were starting to to put together these big weekend packages where you'd get fashion magazines then there were other new magazines like Marie Claire was becoming hugely successful with a kind of mixture of fashion and I wouldn't exactly call it journalism but it was features it wasn't all about fashion (laughs) so um that was why I got the job I got the job not because I was a fashion editor but because I could bring the other things into it and I felt quite confident about that you know it was something um I really felt I wanted to do and that it would be good but it's always difficult to change things and turning vogue changing vogue was really you know i i did it very very slowly i didn't go in it wasn't revolution at all in fact you know if i had my time again i would have done it much quicker would you and, yeah and yeah. was it was it easy to bring the team along with you did you change no the no team? my team mainly left oh did they <laughs> but that's quite normal with an ed- new editor isn't it uh, Yes, quite often the new editor fires them. I didn't actually fire them. They just left me. <laughs> <laughs> did you take huge offence? Oh, actually, Not really, I'm because delighted. it did give me the opportunity yeah. to bring in yeah my gang. Yeah. Um, and then on your on the US side, your counterpart mm. Anna Winter. Yeah. 
um, I think quite often referred to as nuclear winter. <laughs> I looked, I found out. Yes, yes, that's apparently <laughs> how, one of her nicknames. How was your relationship with her? With, was, uh, with was Anna? There one? Well, I mean, we see each other or saw each other at the shows and often there were Vogue dinners yeah. and um, every now and again we'd sort of be somewhere together. But, we, you know, we weren't particularly friends, but we, I mean, curiously, her father was the editor of the Evening Standard when my father was the drama critic there. So there was this kind of strange yeah. link. And, you know, she was a London girl, uh, a bit older than me, but still a London girl, so we had quite a lot of acquaintances in common and things. So you know, I, I have a lot of time for, for Anna. But there's no... But there, there's not discussion, and it is totally... They're totally independent. Totally independent. I'm not so sure whether that's true now, but during my time... It was were. completely mm. independent. I mean, I guess the other thing about becoming editor of Vogue is, my God, you've put yourself right in the public eye, I suppose. Um, and I know that people weren't always terribly kind. Um, you know, I, I, I was rather horrified to read a quote that I saw in the New York Times. The British press has made much of the fact that when it comes to personal wardrobe, Miss Shulman could learn a thing or two from trademark Chanel and that she could also become better acquainted with a hairbrush. Oh, yes, well, oh that's, still God's the, that's still the quick case with the old hairbrush business. But the scrutiny, does, did it bother you or not really? Um... It's lovely not to have it now. Yeah. Uh, it, I thought it was just part of the job. It's not a part of the job that I particularly enjoyed. I mean, I loved people asking me my opinion. I loved being able to influence things. I liked having a voice. Did I enjoy people paying attention to what I looked like? Not particularly. That wasn't sort of really... My thing. But the hair thing's quite a funny thing because when I was... Um, my mum always used to be really furious with me that I hated having my hair brushed. And, you know, we'd go to school like lots of school children. I remember, you know, outside the school tugging this hair because I've always had this thick hair, tugging a hairbrush through my hair. I still don't brush my hair, as you can see. So <laughs> nobody's been able to do anything much about it. But you did have a kind of nightmare scenario more recently with, do I say, Bikini Gate? Oh, Bikini Gate, yeah. <laughs> so how do you feel about Bikini that? Well, I that, mean, tell us what happened, actually, because... Well, that was a weird, a weird moment in time when I just left the magazine and um, I'd planned a sort of summer of holidays. I left in June and we went to, to Greece to stay with great friend of ours who has a wonderful house there and um you know every day we'd go out and have a picnic on the boat and he'd be like you know everyone we're leaving it in five minutes you know sort of rallying the troops because we're quite a big house and quite a lot of people anyway so i'm running upstairs into our um bedroom to grab whatever it was i wanted to take on the boat and I just kind of had this moment of thinking oh it's so lovely i'm so happy i don't have to go to work I'm about to go out on this lovely boat it's a beautiful day it's all kind of wonderful and there was a mirror on the dressing table and actually I'm short-sighted I didn't have my glasses on and um to me the reflection in the mirror I was wearing a bikini just sort of looked like a kind of happy holiday picture so I snapped it and sort of said you know so great to be going out on the boat go out on the boat and then when we get back about five hours later David who's my boyfriend 
um, had got an email from somebody on the Daily Mail saying um, Alex's bikini... Oh, yes, I posted it on Instagram. Bikini <laughs> Instagram is news. So we were like, what? Anyway, it just kind of went crazy. I mean, and I really don't know why. For some reason, this image of a woman who'd taken a picture of herself in a bikini that wasn't a particularly flattering picture, that clearly hadn't been had any filter Edited. or retouch yeah. or anything on it, who had just left Vogue. I guess it was a very, very slow news week is all I can say. Um, <laughs> but it literally, it sort of was in the mail one day, then in the mail the next day, and then it's interesting how this news cycle works. Then everyone else takes it up, and then everyone comments, and it rolled on for about a week. Oh, was, I wasn't in the UK, luckily, but um, but did it make I you miserable? No, not at all. It was highly amusing. <laughs> then my particular favourite comment was, um, I think it was Amanda Platel in the in the Daily Mail, who basically wrote that the that the only reason she could think why a woman like me would post a picture showing off all her wobbly bits was to do penance for the fact. Now, I'd left Vogue of inflicting 25 years of unrealistic body expectation on people. God's sake. <laughs> really, we shrieked. It oh, was so funny. God. So your fifth charm is a typewriter. I mean, again, I wasn't surprised by this charm, but I love the fact that you said you thought it needed to be a metal typewriter. I think you meant instead of black. Mm. Was that because you didn't... Well, I didn't like the idea of having on a charm bracelet something sort of dense and black, yeah. really. Yeah. Um, but I thought the typewriter was really important because although most of my career, actually, I've used computers now... I think the point at where I started writing journalism, I, I was definitely working on typewriters. And um, I just love the feeling of the typewriter key. Still prefer the feeling of a typewriter key to um, to the computer key. But and it must have been kind of soundtrack. I mean, f just thinking about your upbringing. It yeah, must it was a, a soundtrack. soundtrack to your wasn't it? It was. <laughs> I'd come home um, and our dad would be... Uh, often be typing well actually he'd be often be typing in the morning and typing late at night and then my mum would often be typing on the weekends and everyone was typing tap tap tapping away and that uh, still just talking about it now in my mind I can hear that thing where where the carriage gets to the end and it went ping and ping. you whizzed it back yeah. and that was such a lovely feeling so I thought you know that although it's kind of so old-fashioned in a way to have a typewriter it's just um terribly evocative isn't it? Yeah. and yes well totally evocative. again i want to make it as perfect a miniature as i can this typewriter so i really want white gold with kind of black rhodium on it so it is it is great kind of gunmetal gray great three-dimensional um and the little carriage thank you, carriage, <laughs> um, will turn and it will actually turn as if the paper, so, so that it... Oh, it as if you're paper. rolling in yeah, the paper. I think How it lovely. should. Um, and I think the keys should all be little diamonds. Mm -hmm. I think they'd be gorgeous as diamonds. So uh, what age do you think you knew you wanted to write? Well, I always wrote little bits and pieces. Uh, just, you know, as a child... 
and teenager, student or whatever. I've always written for myself, whether that be sort of little bits of poetry. I used to write a lot of poetry and sort of diaries and observations and things, not particularly stories. I've never written a load of stories. And then it wasn't something that I passionately wanted to do. In fact, I sort of, I grew into it really. And I started to do bits and pieces of writing in one of my early jobs, sort of. uh, And then I got a job on Tatler as a result of writing an article for them, a freelance article. And then I decided I did want, that's what I wanted to do, I wanted to write. But as a journalist, there are sort of two kinds of journalists. There are the writers, the journalists, and then there are the kind of, sort of the executives, but actually the commissioning editors. And there's a kind of fork in the road moment for quite a lot of people. I chose to become part of the corporation. And when I was editing my magazines, although I, I wrote a little bit, for the magazines. I didn't really enjoy writing for myself in that way. I always felt slightly uncomfortable that nobody would be able to tell me whether it was any good or not. And oh, to be frightened to tell you. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. That it couldn't yeah. be honest. So I did very little writing. And really, um, now one of the things that's wonderful for me is that I'm doing more writing because I write a sort of notebook for the mail on sunday which is uh, a great um pleasure to me and and really interesting quite sort of privileged to be able to have little ideas and write about them but also i've now written four books so um and and i started doing that gosh i can't remember when my first book came out i think 2012 which was a was a novel so when i was editing vogue i started writing books because actually that way i could do some writing but it wasn't for vogue are you writing books whilst you were editor of Vogue? Yeah, I wrote Did two you? novels, then published a diary of the centenary year of Vogue. So that was, and that was quite a nice way of sort of escaping being a magazine editor, because if you write fiction, you know, you really get into the story. So when I, when I was at home, I could sort of inhabit the world of my fictional world for a bit. It was quite therapeutic I, I mean I just can't believe how much you crammed into the day well again I think you do what you sort of want to do and um, I can't write at all not at all after about one o'clock lunchtime so but I can write very early in the morning so, so whilst you're editor you're getting up the crack of dawn to write this um I would get up do about an hour and a half right. until my son Sam appeared and actually if you do an hour and a half, four times a week, you get quite a lot done. And then on the weekend, I'd probably have about a two or three hours every day on the weekend. You obviously find it easy to write, but I mean, <laughs> I know lots of people that find it so stressful. Honestly, it must it takes them about two years to get two two chapters out. Well, <laughs> I'm a great believer in just doing it. I think if I waited until it was perfect, nothing would ever happen. Yeah. Yeah, so you believe in the kind of 80%. Yeah, yeah. totally. Oh, good. That's a relief to hear from Vogue. <laughs> um, when you left Vogue, was there kind of, kind of mixed emotions about leaving? I made the decision to leave Vogue in 2016. We'd had a wonderful centenary year and the magazine had, you know, done very well and we'd had so much publicity and I'd been sort of really riding high. And... After that, it all felt a bit flat. So I actually didn't think I wanted to leave the magazine. I was just trying to think about what 
what I could do to make life seem a bit, you know, buzzy again. So, in yeah. fact, we rented a little flat in Aldborough on the sea. And it was while I was there I had decided to leave. And the reason why was because we were in this little flat in a different place and I was very happy there and quite content there. And I think I'd always been frightened that when I left Vogue that I would find it difficult to sort of... um, What was my life going to be? I couldn't see what my life was going to be. And when I realised that actually I was really quite happy with something quite simple it isn't that that's what I thought I wanted my life to be but I realized I would be able to survive if that's there was something there was other happened. things yes new, new perspectives and I suddenly saw that in fact there was this sort of wonderful different future I, I mean I know when I when I sold my first business links of London um and wanted to start something else because I mm. quite quickly realized that actually um I wasn't really cut out not to do anything, having worked since I was 18. But I remember this feeling of huge expectation that if something's been successful, other people seem to think that whatever you're going to do has also got to be successful. And actually, that's quite scary. Did you feel that? That's a very interesting point. Um, I don't think I did feel that because I'm not sure, because you can't really compare it to, to businesses. I totally understand what you're saying um but I don't think it applies to to what I've been doing I mean what I would say is that I had no idea what I was going to do when I left Vogue and what I have been doing since isn't really anything that I could have imagined I would be doing so somehow it's kind of it's been really quite an adventure and been very nice to to do some new things. And of course, uh, I think I have an expectation that they should be successful more than other people have an expectation. I'm not very happy if they're not. Now come now to your um, sixth charm, which is a key. Now you can see I've kind of drawn this rather elaborate key and the top part of the key that you actually hold um, it's got a, diamonds around the side and um, bezel set. And then in the centre, I've put a kind of um, lovely cut amethyst, just because I happen to love the colour. But actually, now you've told me it might have to be, it might have to be something pink. No, I think pink. we've got quite a lot of pink because we've got the pink in the camera, haven't we, as well? Yeah. So, so maybe it could be your birthstone. Topaz, that is. Oh, well, there we go. It could be. It could be that. And... Now I know that um, topaz is your is your birthstone. Then the, the bottom of the key, I see it as a cabochon um, topaz, but really tactile and absolutely as a key should as a key should be. But tell me, um, tell me why you've chosen a key. Well, all of this industry, the um, anyway, the typewriter and the camera and everything um, was really driven by the desire to buy to buy my own property. I was brought up living in a rented flat. My parents always rented. And as is true, I think, for all of us, you know, a lot of your kind of, your thoughts and your ambitions are formed by your childhood experience. And my childhood experience was this continual feeling that we might not be able to afford to stay. You know, it certainly wasn't slumming it, but you know, we we used to say, us children, why don't you buy somewhere? You know, then then you wouldn't have to go through all this. But it, in 
imposed on me this absolute ambition to, to buy property. Hence the key and hence, for example, the decision we were talking about earlier to sort of take the corporate route rather than the lone wolf route because it was, you know, guaranteed money, better paid yeah. and everything. And I think the, the desire to to have my own roof over my head has been a hugely motivating factor um, in, with, in everything with, that so I've done. All, so, because uh, that was... That was what I was going to ask you is that in terms of career choices, so having kind of perhaps wanted to be a writer, explored writing early on, mm. um, but you know, was the impetus to pay a mortgage yeah. <laughs> effectively? Yeah, very much so. And um, also, as time went by, um, I had a child and, and I was married, and then my marriage split up and I sort of became a single parent and certainly economically a, um, a single parent. So, you know, that the earning of money has always been very important to me and it always rather surprises me that people sort of don't necessarily think that that's what it would be. I mean, somebody did once say to me, well, if, you, if really you'd been motivated by earning money, you would have gone job that paid you a great deal more money than because actually journalists aren't particularly fabulously paid. So I suppose that's true. But anyway, um, you know, I did manage to buy my first flat. Um, so when, when, I, when did you manage to do that? Uh, I mean, early Well, of on? course, now, you know, no, now it seems unbelievable. I mean, it was actually quite late. I had lots of friends who'd bought flats by then, but I was about 27 and right. I bought a flat on Ladbrook Grove. And 52 bus stop was literally outside my bedroom window, literally outside my bedroom window. So people could just all look through the Venetian blinds, which I didn't realise at night from the bus stop. And um, I then, you know, bought another few flat, you know, moved on. And of course, it was by that point, it was the late 80s. We were all encouraged to buy property. Absolutely, yeah. And um, so it was a, a fantastically good decision. It was a fantastically good decision, yeah. and something that you know our own children will never be in a position to to buy for so relatively little. Yeah. No, it's a, for this generation. It's so hard. So your final charm is your son's name is Sam, and I just felt that the way to represent it was just to write it, just yes. to write it in script. Absolutely. Um, you could wear it as a, as a charm or um, all round your neck. Yeah, um, and it's lovely. I'd seen it in, again, I mean, I just love yellow gold, and I know you like gold too, so, um, so I'd seen yellow gold with, with diamonds um, around, you know, certain parts of the letters. Beautiful. Um, but cut out and um, exactly represented as the letters of capital S, small a, small m. Talk, talk to me about Sam. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm longing to know how you managed to be a mummy and work and all of the things that you've achieved, because it's not easy. Well, I had Sam when I was 37. So by the time he was born, I'd sort of done quite a lot. And, and I desperately wanted to have a child. I was absolutely thrilled when when there he was, and we've, you know, been together a lot because when his father moved out, it was just him and me for really quite a long time. And I think that that made it 
somewhat easier because I wasn't trying to juggle being a wife and a mother. I was just a mother and doing my job. So it removed one whole thing Sorry. out of the equation, which I really think helped um, in terms of sort of juggling. So I was at work and I was able to work. I had a series of wonderful girls, nannies, but, you know, they weren't trained nannies. They were just all of them fantastic, really. And they lived with me and Sam, normally stayed for about 18 months. Then when I came home, um, I was with Sam and I wasn't working and there wasn't anybody else to worry about. So Yes, I guess that, that definitely That does helped. make it easier. Yeah, easier, but not easy, I'd not, say. <laughs> not easy. And um, I'm very good at uh, focusing I'm very good at kind of compartmentalising and I didn't really worry about work when I was at home with Sam. I didn't really worry that much about Sam when I was at work. Um, I think for me personally, having a child made doing my job much more possible because I think if I hadn't had that alternative uh alternate important thing in my life then it the difficulties that come up which of course they do at work would have taken much up much more of my headspace than yeah. they did so I was always um I felt it helped the balance really but you did I mean I assume you traveled hugely as editor of Vogue well, I, I didn't travel in the way that lots of people travel, which is on a kind of continual and quite ad hoc basis. You, I knew when I was going to travel, which was to the fashion shows, which was basically a every month out months. of every six months. Yeah. And my heart did sink when that was coming up. But uh, it didn't happen very often. And I always took the view that it was very important if you, you had, if you have nannies or people who are looking after your children, that you really respect the agreement you've got. And I think in the end, they they were always prepared to sort of go the extra mile for me because um, because of them. that, yeah, yeah, because I respected them. Yeah. But I didn't sort of travel um, a huge amount, but what I did have was a lot of evening engagements. So I'd whiz home, and I didn't live that near the office, so, you know, I'd get home, come and see Sam, spend some time with him, run into a bath or change of clothes, and then, you know, be out again when hopefully he was in in bed um so that was a bit exhausting what would sam what what does he say now does he of his memories of, of growing up <laughs> depends what mood he's in yeah they're good um, of course <laughs> yeah. i think uh, it's hard to say you know one does have to ask him i think he um what he mainly says is, "Well, I didn't know what I didn't know anything else." That's you a know. bit like where you where yeah. you started. Actually, yeah. you're kind of given your cards, yeah. and that's what it is. Yeah. Actually, I'm rather dreading when my children go, kind of are thinking about how they're going to bring up their children. They're going to say, "Oh my God, she was never at home," or you know, whatever. I think whatever you do, there's going to be criticisms. You know, either you're on the ho at home and dull and on their case too much, or you're too distant, or yeah. that's healthy. God. So just finally, I think, um, I think, did your mother say at some point that you could only have two out of three things, work, family, or and social, social life? life? Yeah. And so I'm, I'm kind of just interested looking back on your seven charms. Do you think you've achieved all three? 
think I probably have, but in a slightly, um, I think family. I'm very keen on family. I'm very close to my family, but I only have one child. I have two stepchildren, who uh, one of whom lived with me from the age of 12 to 22, um, and the other would come at, at weekends. But I don't have a big family that I'm the matriarch of. Right. And I think that's a different thing. Um, so I think it would have been very hard to do Vogue and you know, have a ton of children. Certainly being a single mother, I couldn't possibly have done it with, say, three children. I don't know how one would have begun to do that. Um, so maybe family, as it were, took a bit of a hit. But, you know, I think it's, you know, on the 80%, I'd say I got three. I think you did. Yeah. I'm, from where I'm sitting, it feels totally like you had three. Um, I've so enjoyed talking to you about your oh, life good. Thank seven you. Charms. And I've so enjoyed seeing what these amazing, so, amazing gems are. So I'm going to make you one of these charms. Um, oh. And I would love to know which one you'd like me to make you. Whilst you're thinking about it, in, you know, 100 years' time, when somebody, somebody, one of your, your relations, finds this charm bracelet buried in a box somewhere mm. with your seven charms what would you like them to think about you how would you how would you like them to you know they'll 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 have a kind of vision of I suppose you I'd like them to think what a kind of fun life I had really I hope it would make show them that you know it was a, just a life of real interest and yeah. and I think it would be with cameras and books and dresses and yeah. records Absolutely, it would things. be incredibly, uh, yeah, varied, um, varied life. So, which any well, any thoughts? I'm You're kind not sure of now. Torn between <laughs> the camera looks so beautiful and so extraordinary. I'm most likely to to use the Sam. It's the least decorative, but I can think of different ways of wearing it. So, mm -hmm. I think it would sort of be with me more of, most of the time. Okay, we'll go with Sam. Brilliant. We'll go with Sam. Thank you oh, so beautiful. much. Thank, Thank you. you. Very exciting. Oh, good. Thank you so much for listening to My Life in Seven Charms with me, Anushka Dukas. Please do like, review and subscribe to hear our latest episodes. Thank you to Fairly Media for our audio production.